It's a new day for all of us. Hello, my name is Van Ritchie, and it is an absolute pleasure to introduce you to Peel Back the Onion, a regular podcast where you are the most important person of the day and where life issues and challenges get to be peeled back so you have the best day of your life. And now, please welcome the hosts of Peel Back the Onion, Dr. Geraldine Cronin and Dr. Jerry Camarata. Welcome to our podcast today and a generous thank you to you, Van, for that introduction. I'm Jerry Camarata, author of the fun book of fatherhood. And I'm Geraldine Cronin, clinical psychologist and we're delighted to take you on still another journey into why we do what we do. And this week, it's about weight loss. We will have a discussion of enlightenment as to the complexity surrounding your body weight, your overall good health, and most importantly, your mental health. It will be a journey that will help you better understand what you are thinking, what you're feeling, and what you need to do to peel back some of those things which take away from being that very special person you want to be. We will ask the question, as we will in every one of our podcasts and shows, what happened? How did the lives of people in so many situations change and transform, leading them down a path of destruction or at least being aware of negative feelings? What happened indeed, Geraldine? Some of our emails will be very revealing, and we hope we can give some guiding light to those in need. And now before we speak to our guest, let's listen to Dr. Tro Collegian and his special perspective on how to better live our lives. There's a deep emotional level and a psychological level that goes along with obesity. If you've been shamed your whole life for being obese, this carries a lot of emotions. Our goal is to help patients lose weight, let their bodies heal as they were meant to heal, which is consistent with the tenets of the lessons we learned at Torocom. I found myself at medical school at Torocom at 350 pounds and completely bewildered. I just didn't know how to lose weight and it was challenging because the standard advice was eat less and move more and that advice never worked. But I went back to the medical textbooks and started to look into the literature, what works and what doesn't work. When you look at the data, usually the diets that are lowest in processed carbohydrates and lowest in sugars that help people lose weight and fix their diabetes. So I started right there. And since then, I've lost 150 pounds. There's a lot of things that drive obesity and disease. Stress can lead you to eat, you know? People can lead you to eat. So a big part of what we do here is we give people hope that you can do it, and we give them a plan, which is not eat less and move more. We work with our patients to look at the whole body, look at the whole situation. Is there a hormonal reason that they're hungry or eating? Is there a stress reason that they're hungry or eating? Is there a psychological reason that they're hungry or eating? I think it's difficult for most physicians who are not overweight or have not been overweight to relate to the struggles of somebody who is obese. And I think that that makes the divide between a patient and a physician even more paramount and even more difficult, and it becomes a barrier to getting good care. One of the most important lessons I think I learned at Torocom was having empathy for the patient, understanding their struggles, and being able to meet them where they are. It's something I think Torocom instilled in me. I want to thank Toro University College of Osteopathic Medicine in New York for the clip we just saw. Today's show is about hope, that same hope Dr. Tro found through his medical education and how he was able to provide through our discussions. There are so many psychological issues which propel us into destroying our health and even ability to thrive. Some of the destructive elements behind our actions are actually phrases we think of as nice, having a good time, living it up, or what's one more drink? We can be persuaded into adding bad calories to our diet. 
After today, let us not be seduced by anything else other than what we know to be good for ourselves, our bodies, and our minds. We could all shed a few pounds. What's interesting for today's discussion, Jerry, is not just losing the weight. It's having a very good understanding of why we are above our ideal weight, how we feel about ourselves, understanding the risk factors associated with being overweight, and making a personal commitment to taking charge of our lives. A special note to you, this podcast is not about a new and fancy weight loss program. This podcast is about your future relationship to weight. Weight loss starts with an understanding of who we are. Well, I could not agree with you more, Geraldine. Think of this. There are about 8 billion people on this planet as we speak today. Of the 8 billion people, 1.9 billion adults are overweight. A quarter of the Earth's population is at risk for developing a wide variety of associated medical conditions with obesity. Now, there I said it. I used the word obesity. But I'm not going to pontificate over it. Rather, our guest today is not only an authority on weight loss, uh, eating healthy, and, and a person who takes time to know you as a patient, but he's a friend. Please welcome to Peel Back the Onion, Dr. Tro Kalajian. How are you, Dr. Kalajian? So happy to be here. Well, Absolutely we get, pleasure. Well, I'm glad we're happy to have you. Before we get started, and in fairness to full disclosure, Dr. Tro and I go back to 2007 when I was the Dean of Student Affairs at Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine, now Toro University College of Osteopathic Medicine in Harlem, New York. And Dr. Tro was an entering first-year medical student. Well, I knew then and certainly know now Dr. Tro's life was designed not only to be a good physician, but to change the world. We heard about some of your life struggles just a few moments ago, Tro, but can you enlighten us on the effect your former obesity had on your wife and other members of your family? If you didn't become a physician, do you think you'd have been as successful as you are today in managing your weight loss? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, so that's a great way to kick off, kick off the show and get things started. Um, I was 350 pounds. And I went, I mean, you saw me through medical school. You met, you were one of my greatest mentors in medical school. My wife to this day is so excited when I say your name, you know, uh, she still remembers you and the impact you had on my life. Mm. And um, yeah, so, so I found myself uh, going into medicine with a strong passion to heal and, and to uh, be a caregiver really and, and to serve my community. And what happened was I gained about 10 to 15 pounds a year and basically succumbing to what had plagued my family. Uh, my mom had diabetes. My, my dad had you know, heart disease, obesity, but everybody obese. Um, my brother's obese. And we had battled for a long, long time and really never found success. And yeah, you make it through residency and you're up to 350 pounds. And you know, I trained uh, after Toro. I went to a Yale-affiliated internal medicine residency program, and um, I was the chief resident even there, and I found myself at 350 pounds. And my colleagues would ask me, very the world's brightest you know, cardiologists and endocrinologists, and they would say, why don't you just count your calories, and maybe you, know, you need to eat less and exercise. And you know, I don't know if you remember, Dr. C, but I helped set up the first gym at Toro. Yes. I don't know if you remember that. I remember you and Dr. Sexter. Yeah, if you go back way, way back that when that, that's how much I loved to exercise. So the paradigm that, that's you know, pervasive in medicine is that you have to eat less and, and move more. And that paradigm really had failed me. And this is, you know, multiple institutions I train, not just, you know, medical school, but residency and beyond, you know, uh, education beyond. So... Um, if I didn't go into medicine, I think I would have just not been able to muster the strength and the knowledge. I had to go back and read, you know, maybe 2,000 original scientific articles, and I had to go back and read 300 textbook, you know, 300 books on on diet and three textbooks on obesity. Um, and that all started when my wife, you know, who you know very well, yes, she looked at me and she said, "Are you going to make it?" 
Mm. You know, she looked at me and she said, are you going to make it? She was, you know, we were thinking about getting pregnant with our third son, you know, who's now going to be seven. And, um, and she asked me, are you going to make it? And, and she played me like a fiddle. My wife's an attorney, <laughs> as you know, uh, Dr. C. She played me really well. Uh, and she knew that she could harp on my vanity. And she said, you're a smart doctor. You scored on the 90th percentile on your board exam. You know, all the mentors that got you to this point, you know, somebody like you should be able to figure this out. And I remember when she said that. Um, and so, you know, I, I thought to myself, she's right. You know, why can't I go figure this out? And I went well, back. She was, your, she was your greatest cheerleader. Definitely. Uh, Dr. Trout, this is Geraldine. I'm fascinated with your story. As a clinical psychologist, I know how important it is for a person to believe in themselves and their self-worth. How did you bridge that event in coming to grips with who you were then, who you are now? What caused this radical transformation? Yeah, I think, uh, I think the first step was, you know, what would you do if this was any other problem? And as a clinician, you know, we're used to treating things, you know. And, uh, for example, you take something like pneumonia or COVID, right. right? Like we know how to prevent and we know how to treat, right? We know the different drugs and their side effects and which one's better and, you know, head-to-head -head studies. So I'm like, okay, what would I do if this was pneumonia? Right. You know, I would look up which antibiotics work better, right? And which ones, you know, have side effects and what, what those side effects are. Right. So... You go to the medical literature and you look at those head-to-head -head studies, right? And all of a sudden, it's not exactly what the uh, pervasive messaging is. You know, the pervasive messaging is eat the food pyramid, you know, more fruits, more, right. you know, potatoes and starches and more, you know, uh, carbohydrates that sit at the bottom of the pyramid that we all grew up with. And, you know, or the my plate that it converted to, half of it is grains. You know, but when you look at the obesity and the diabetes literature, you know, it seemed to be consistently that the low-carbohydrate approaches always did better, not by much, but better. Now, this is, you know, not getting into the psychology of it. This is just a person, a doctor, who's like, right. I'm going to do what's most likely to work. Like, that was it. Right. I had never eaten a steak in my life Wow. up until that point. I mean... You know, we had kebabs here and there, you yeah. know, being an Armenian Mediterranean. But yes, yes. I'd never really eaten meat. I'd never done a low-carb diet. I mean, I, I don't ever remember cooking a steak. So, um, yeah, it was... See, uh, I guess what the question I'm asking you is that I have many patients, and some of them are 350 pounds, yeah. or their mate is, or their child, and somehow they can't get started they get emotionally. It's so overwhelming. It's so monumental that they don't know what to do. And they can't bridge it psychologically. They may know all of some of this material. But the major piece inside is that they can't control their hunger, their cravings. Um, Bingo. And the cravings and the triggers. Bingo. So, you, hit yeah. the, you hit the nail on the head here with that word, hunger and cravings. And they yeah. need people to help them, too. Yeah. To get them started. And another thing, I, I just one more thing. And another thing I noticed, which was really fascinating to me, was that for those who had th were about 350, they didn't even know they had a food regulator in them. They, there was no food regulator. They just never felt full. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, so that was, uh, that was exactly my life. I, I looked at which diets worked in the literature, and it wasn't exactly the messaging I had heard. And so uh, I said, I'm going to start there. And I said to myself, well, let me examine what are the reasons why I failed in the past. Right. And exactly what you just said. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. You know, I have a couple of, you know, uh, uh, I have to approach this like I would anything else, like my car. I can't have a fear of getting into an, into an accident, so I don't drive again. Right. right. So I need to figure out what do I what do I need to make this work, and what do most people need to make it work? They need to feel that they can manage their hunger, they can manage their cravings, and right. they don't feel deprived, and they know how to manage social situations, and they know how to right. manage vacations, holidays, and right. And when they stumble, having a place to 
to kind of pick themselves back up and get started, not letting that not letting that stumbling go on and on and on. Right to restart to recalibrate. Yes. So no, you know, restart sooner and sooner each time. Right. So as long as you do that, then you're on a path to healing. And so I just started there. I lowered my carbs and mm -hmm. I figured to myself, okay, how am I going to manage my cravings? I'm going to tell you a quick story. I legit ate the chocolate out of my coworker's uh, cabinet, you know, in our break room. Right. I'm I a physician. You. I'm a. Yeah, you couldn't stop. You know, I'm a physician. I'm a, I'm a board certified internist working in a hospital, coding, crashing, and then you get out and, you know, you're coming high, you know, you're. You're off of those, uh, uh, you know, adrenaline, and, and you're coming down. And I'm sitting in the the doctor's lounge, and I would eat. You know, I would get so ravenous. I would eat. That's right. I remember her name, Doctor Ladado. Poor, if you listen to this, Doctor Ladado, I'm going to send you a box of chocolates. But I would eat her chocolate. I believe you. And um, I said to myself, you know, instead of feeling shame and guilt about this, why don't yes. I just get myself? Some chocolate, you so know. Let so let me I ask you this: chocolate. So I brought low carb chocolate into the break room. I and she's believe like, you. So it was simple little things like that. Like, hey, look, you don't need to hide the wrappers and feel shame and guilt, and you don't need to, like, your appetite is your appetite. You don't control these things, but we control how we express them. So my first goal was just lower my carbohydrates. That was it, and try to make right. it easy for me instead of right. fighting my hunger and cravings. Let me figure out what I need and let me get it where I need it. And of course, liquor fills, fits right into this. Is that, uh, that correct, Dr. Trow? Yeah, I mean, so you I never drank, but um, if you imagine there's some people, how do we manage stress? If you look at kind of how the APA approaches stress, um, you know, one of the things they'll say to be careful about is self-medication. Some people use sex, some people use alcohol, right. some people use drugs, and other people use food. These are the most common ways, you know, if you look at, the pandemic and, and the anxiety that came week one, you know, the calls we got into our office was, Doc, I'm eating again. Doc, I'm right. drinking again. Doc, can yes. you prescribe me Xanax? Doc, I'm taking a lot of CBD and, you know, smoking weed. Right. right? Well, what happens, what happened there is that most people were going into some sort of a emotional coma. And food puts them in an emotional coma so that they don't have, they're numbed. They're totally numbed, and they don't feel anything. Um, the other thing that I wanted to present and go in here with to into it a little bit is that some of the patients I see who are bipolar, anxious, depressed, um, the medications they take cause them to gain weight, and that creates even more of a problem. I'm wondering about your feelings about how do you how do you break through that so that the person can take the appropriate medication, be it lithium, Latuda, uh, Abilify, and Zoloft, and what else, and still be able to uh, have a stable mind? Well, so, I th you know, that becomes very complicated, but the, the long and the short of it is you're absolutely right. Antipsychotics uh, are associated with metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, and weight gain. Um, you know, particularly Abilify, one of those that you mentioned. Yes. I think... Uh, you know, if you look at medications like Zoloft, right, mm -hmm. um, they can be very powerful for anxiety. And one of the interesting things out of uh, the work from Rajita Sinha in Yale on stress eating was that anxiety robs a patient of their self-perception of hunger. So imagine That's very you're interesting. About, you know, you don't feel hungry. If you're anxious, right. you don't feel That's hungry. Right. You right. feel stressed out. That's right? right. And then, but if you then present them in, in a junk food buffet, right, after a stress cue or after an anxiety cue, yeah. they actually eat more than somebody who's given a hunger cue, like, hey, imagine pizza, imagine, you know, uh, ice cream, imagine, right? So these hunger cues make us hungry, right? They make yeah. us release the cephalic phase response. Our, our organs start churning, like we start making saliva, we start anticipating food, yes. and then we eat more than we normally would. Right? But interestingly, stress cues, like imagine 9-11, imagine yes. terrible th wars going on, imagine you know, your parents hate you, your kids hate you, your, yes. your wife hates you, everybody's yelling at you, your patients are having a bad, whatever it is, it's the worst stress you can imagine. Right. right? And you put them through this stress cue, people will not perceive hunger. Whereas with a hunger cue, you're like, yeah, I feel hungry. So what's, the, you were so is what's the hunger cue, tell me? 
Yeah, so after a hunger cue, you realize you feel hungry, mm. right? After, after a stress cue, because you feel, you see the saliva, you know you're hungry, but after a I stress cue, you don't perceive hunger, you perceive stress, you perceive anxiety. So here when we, you here go we to are. that junk food buffet, what do you do? Somebody mm -hmm. who's stressed eats more than a hunger cue. Right. So here, here we are, Dr. Tro. We know that there are people with psychosocial problems, and we know that medication is certainly going to add to the fact that they're going to gain weight, they're going to eat more. And then you compound that all by people putting on the television, and as they're watching television, there is an array of different kind of weight loss programs. Uh, can you comment about what all of these weight loss programs are really trying to get accomplished, but more particularly, I know you are enormously sensitive to the keto diet and the value that that diet has, and not just from a sales promotion, but from a, a systemic change in the body and, and, and why you believe that is something that everybody ought to try and everybody ought to adopt. Well, so you, you say everybody, but I'll, I'll, I'll be very careful what I say. So if you take the pediatric population, okay, about 20% have diabetes now, right? 20% have fatty liver, okay? And about 40% are obese or overweight. That's oh. the pediatric population. That's terrible. Oh, it's, it's worse than terrible. Yeah, worse than yeah. terrible. Now, once you get to adult, two-thirds are either pre-diabetic or diabetic, Okay, more than one-third have fatty liver, okay, and uh, more than two-thirds are either overweight or obese, and our life expectancy has consistently fallen for the last four years. Wow. Okay, so it's come to a tipping point where we really can, cannot uh, manage this. And now, if you look at processed carbohydrates and alcohol, right, so processed carbohydrates and alcohol, the way that most people deal with stress, they uniquely cause metabolic syndrome. Right, right? Metabol yep. metabolic syndrome is basically diagnosed with high triglycerides, low HDL, high blood sugar, okay, mm -hmm. and a big waste. Which a waste, I remember fat. that. Yeah, yeah, which basically means you're getting organ fat. It's pre-diabetes, mm. pre essentially. Now, less than 6% of America, okay, has no component of metabolic syndrome, meaning less than 6% mm. Of adult Americans are free of the grasp of metabolic syndrome. Meaning That's incredible. Ninety-four percent have at least have one it. of those things. Wow. Right. So the problem is, is not that everybody needs to do the keto diet. It's that we're incredibly sick. Yeah, we. Right. Yeah. So that's true. You know, if you are a thin, you know, young kid who's active, right, and you're metabolically healthy, you don't have any organ fat, and you're right, you don't have any major issues, your triglycerides are fine. Right? You don't need to do that. My kids eat, you know, my kids have fruits and they're fine. They're healthy. Right? But most of Americans are, uh, have metabolic syndrome, diabetes, prediabetes, hypertension, prehypertension, overweight, or obesity. So when I say that uh, everybody should try it, well, look, the most reliable diet to reduce blood sugars and to reduce metabolic syndrome is a low-carbohydrate diet, particularly right. a ketogenic diet. It's just more potent. And most of the diets out there actually promote carbohydrates or some, some, some small portion of carbo, uh, carbohydrates. Yeah, so if you look at a low-fat diet, which has been the paradigm for the last 70 years, which I think we can all agree is an utter failure at this point, um, mm -hmm. it, it can work. I'm not saying it can't work, but on a systemic basis to stem obesity in our population, it hasn't worked. On an individual level, it still can. It's kind of like you know, outdated drugs. They may have worked at some time, but they're right. not suitable now. Um, and our population has changed. So That's true. You know, now we have an obese population. We have a diabetic population. And so cutting carbs are uniquely beneficial. Um, and you know what? It doesn't hurt that I lost 150 pounds with it. So I think, you know, I'm just more versed in that approach. So ultimately, it's whatever a person wants to do and can do. Now, if somebody comes to me and says, I can't eat meat because of more, their moral proclivity or right, religion. Right. You know, you have to adapt to that and you have to try to teach them the principles of nutrition and work with what works with them. You know, and what about, so, let me ask you this, uh, what about the bypass surgery and uh, starting them off and having them start with that? Because I, you know, I, I know one case where he's 400 pounds 
And I don't even know if he can even get this thing going. And he's a man about 35 years old. That's, that's sad. I, I've had patients like that. I've had a 16-year-old at 550 pounds. Oh, my who, God. Who couldn't breathe. Uh, right, right, right. Walking uh, because of obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, where literally uh, uh, the, the lungs are suffocated. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and and your hearts go out to those people. And uh, yeah, absolutely, there are other options. But here's the thing, you know, um, there are medications, right, that right. can help get people started and keep right. them going. There are, there are, but I think nothing, nothing replace, excuse me, replaces a great mental health counselor, a right. great psychi- psychologist, psychiatrist, right. and a great family support. Family if, support. If you team, look you need at, a team approach. That's what you're really saying. Bingo. If you look at uh, the people who do well systematically in our program, they're people who have support for their mental health. Right. Okay. Or are in good, have good mental health. Right. That's it. Yes. Or they have great family support. Those two key features, if right. they just have a will and an idea of getting better, mm-hmm. right? That could be the breakthrough. It's going to be immediate, like fireworks. Right. right? So I think these are the key things, right? If you're, if you're eating foods because of a deep depression or anxiety mm-hmm. or a, you know, a traumatic event, right. well, there's no amount of food that's going to fill that hole. I know. They're just going to feel empty yeah. all the time. True. What about the, the, the idea of three meals a day? I mean, that's just your, your typical approach toward, um, toward eating. Uh, how do you feel about that? That's also a joke. Um, so... It really is a joke. It's it's uh, it's outdated. It's old. You sh- you know generally when we have people in our clinic, we start them off and say, basically eat is eat three times a day and eat filling meals so that you're not snacking throughout the day. The average American eats for on average 16 hours a day, which includes three meals and three snacks on average. That's the average American. Wow. They're constantly eating. Oh my. Right. So this message that you have to have, you know, three meals, that's completely gone out the wayside. We've done, you know, there's been studies that show that four hours of eating is beneficial, six hours of eating is beneficial, eight hours of eating is beneficial. Eating less frequently in those times can be beneficial. I think ultimately feeling like you have to eat, okay, feeling like you have to eat because it's time, it's it's not valid. In fact, if you're not hungry, and you know you're going to come home to a meal that's going to be sound and you're going to cook it and you know it's filling, you know, protein and a vegetable, why would you force yourself to eat? Right. What about grazing all day or intermittent fasting? Yeah, so that's intermittent. So the opposite of eating three meals a day would be eating less frequently. Right. And that's basically called intermittent fasting or right. time-restricted eating. And it is a phenomenal tool for weight loss, often underutilized. Because mm. think about it this way. What's the... What's the pervasive, look, look at it from a food rules perspective. Right now, the messaging, when you go to your doctor, it's, they don't even ask you if you have uh, emotional issues with food. They don't ask right. you if you have psychological issues with food. Exactly. They just say, eat less, right? right? So what do you mean eat less? Like every time people tell me to eat less, I get pissed off, agitated, like leave me alone. I know I what know. I'm doing. I'm a grown man. Like, why would you tell me what to do, right? So how are you going to tell somebody who's to eat less when their emotional processing when it comes to exactly. food are off? So. Right. The problem with eat less is it doesn't work, right? We're dealing with addictive substances that, exactly. that literally, you know, people are trying to understand their relationship to an addictive substance, right? Right. So, but then, then the, the first, the next thing they say is count your calories. Right. So just as a food rule perspective, so you're trying to help somebody implement a lifestyle change. Think about how hard it is to count your calories. Like you have to... Look on the label, estimate how much you ate, remember everything that you ate, I know, remember I know. what you stress ate, plug it into a log, calculate yep. what you ate, you know, it is crazy. Well, just think about how easy it is to count your hours. Like, hey, exactly. just eat eight hours a day. Or eat, right. you know, you did eight hours last week, eat six hours this week. Exactly. Right? From a perspective yes. of a food rule, intermittent fasting is like, wow, you just saved me a ton of brain space. Exactly. The because I know becomes, some of the... Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I know so, oh, what I was going to say is that some of the patients of mine, they night eat. They, Correct. And, they, and yeah. I've never... You know, when I heard that the first time, I said, you mean you get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and you eat? Like you really go to and eat? And they do. It's part of their 24-hour cycle. 
Tro, if you were going to suggest a, a meal tonight uh, that would be based upon the keto diet, what would, uh, what would be the, the food choices that you would put into that? Well, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a type of paradigm that could be low fat, could be Mediterranean, and could be keto, and could be low carb, and they're all healthy, right? Meat, fish, chicken, eggs, you know, Greek yogurt, green leafy vegetables, low carb fruit. Berries, olives, peppers, avocado, right? You can call that Mediterranean if you want. You can call that keto if you want. You can call that low carb if you want. You can call that low fat if it's, you know, chicken and greens. So bottom line is um, a typical healthy dinner for most people, and that's most people's concept is true to that, right, is a protein and a vegetable, Right. The problem becomes, is what the good doctor just said, is the night eating. What happens mm. afterwards? One hour later when you're like, you know, I could have something sweet, right? Or one hour after that when you had something sweet, you're like, I could have something salty now, right? So that night mm. eating is a particular vulnerability. And if you, in fact, 100% of binge eating is actually at night. Mm. And 100% of binge eating is with hyperpatible junk food. Yep. 100%. It's an amazing phenomenon. Right? So when we're working with people, it's their concept of eating well. Everybody has the same basic concept. Meat, fish, chicken, eggs, Greek yogurt, green leafy vegetables, you know, low-carb fruits, berries, you know, stuff like that. That's healthy, plus or minus nuts. Right? That's just a healthy diet for most people. Now, the problem is, what do I do when I crave something sweet? The mm-hmm. problem is, what do I do if I crave something salty? Right? Right. What do I do if I've eaten dinner and I still want something? Right. Right. And that's where we start the journey with most people with obesity, right there. Right? Okay, let's tackle those things because you know they're coming. Right. I had a, a, another question for you. Um, I often ask my patients who have weight issues, I want to know their relationship to food, but I also want to know their parents' relationship to food. 100%, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because based on the, what they've seen with their parents... I want to know how they experience um, food and what it meant in the home and in the culture. And, you know, I remember someone saying um, if the feeling was if you don't eat what I give you, then you really don't like me. It's, it's a rejection of my culture. It's a rejection of me. So you have to eat when you really don't want to eat. Does your practice, Tro, bring the whole family in, as, um, as Dr. Cronin is indicating? One, one hundred percent. So uh, you can see that there's a lot of food rules and, and we'll, we can logic ourselves into eating, right? So if you understand the drive to eat, right, the, the drive to eat can, you know, uh, abuse your logic systems, right? So That's like, right. why did you eat that? Oh, I didn't want to make them happy. Well, what if they told you to make them happy if they stabbed your tires? Right. Right. You wouldn't do that, right? So Exactly. So... So what's the difference between other things we advocate for, like our money, our car, right? The health of our pets, right? The vet says, don't eat these foods. He's allergic. You you make sure that pet doesn't eat that. Exactly. Right? So other things we generally advocate for, right? We don't allow our logic to be manipulated, but food addiction and the drive to eat, right? It can really manipulate those logic. And let me just give you examples, right? Like, oh, I ate that, you know, I was 350 pounds. I would eat my kids' leftovers and I'd say, I didn't want to waste, I didn't want to waste it. Right. Right? So <laughs> look at this logic. The logic is sound, like we shouldn't waste I know. food. But I'm not donating to UNICEF or whatever, food pantries. Right. I'm not donating. I'm eating. The food addiction is manipulating my logic. Right. Making me exactly. eat, the, eat the food. How about this one? I've done, I did this one for so long. I've been good. I deserve it. Right. Well, that's for yeah. sure. It's that's very true. I am a good person. You know, I know. So I should your be podcast. I can't be half bad, right? <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but I'm a good person, but my logic's being abused. Here's this one, right? I've been good. I deserve it, right? Like I've been on plan. I deserve to cheat, yeah. right? But I've been off plan. I might as well keep eating that way. I'll start again next week. That's right. So but here's the wrong. problem. The logics don't match up. I know. Something's manipulating do. the logic. That's food addiction. That's the it drive food to eat. addiction. Tro, we've talked a lot today about diet, um, about the kinds of foods that we should have in our diet, and we're talking about food. 
But you and I know that food alone is not really going to make you lose weight. And I know you particularly love your sports and you love going to the gym. So tell us a little bit about that integration, the required integration between good food, good healthy habits of living, as well as good physical exercise. You know, uh, we, I, I keep, you know, because we have an esteemed, you know, psychologist here, I think we have, to, uh, we have to bring it back to mental health. If you okay. look at literature for, uh, weight, for weight loss interventions, diet uh, pretty consistently governs about 90% of weight loss and fat loss, and exercise may be able to contribute about 10%. Um, so it's a minor component for a weight loss program. But if you really? look at weight I thought loss, it'd be much more than that. Yes, yeah, I you think it's you. much more, but it's, it's certainly yeah. not. Because, no. look, think about it. One hour of exercise takes like two minutes worth of donut eating to, to undo. Exactly. So, so, but if you look at people who sustain weight loss, they uniformly, almost universally, 99.9% will exercise nearly daily. Mm-hmm. And if you look at people who sustain weight loss, they have excellent, excellent support, social networks, and mental health. So it is my belief that daily exercise is actually a mental health tool that keeps people, um, you know, uh, keeps people on their journeys. So, and in terms of what exercise is best to do, I think it's a combination. Uh, Resistance training is absolutely critical and certainly, you know, high intensity interval training or zone two cardiovascular training. These are really, you know, excellent ways of, uh, of keeping the body healthy and, you know, the bone health, the metabolic health from exercise is irreplaceable. But most importantly, the mental health components, yes. right, is just yes. absolutely critical. So, yeah, well, I'm a let huge me just, fan. I'm going to jump in on this one. I've always said that if your mood is stable, you can do so much in life. And the mood then responds to one's th- feeling. The feelings then cause the um, the thoughts and the thoughts then cause the actions. But if you're st- if you're emotionally not stable, all of this is difficult, and you can't get there. So it's really important to have a stability, an emotional stability, really set up by a team that's helping you and coaching you and working with you, so that you can feel that kind of sense of sufficiently okay contentment, so that you can move on. Um, because otherwise. The addictions build, the triggers, and and people just can't stop. They just go into a coma, and then they have to start again. And it's this kind of concept that I've seen. Freud used the term doing and undoing. We start it, they get there, and then boom, they relapse, and we do it all over again. And it's the same cycle. Well, one thing that you've opened our ears to and our eyes to today, Tro, is the fact that being an osteopathic physician like you are It is a mind, body, and spirit endeavor that just going on a diet is not enough. You need family support. You need people around you. You need the counseling necessary in order for you to really do something good for yourself, good for your body. And I think it was an eye-opener to have you. And I remember uh, the, the day in 2011 when you graduated medical school and you walked across the stage at the Apollo Theater. And one of the most exciting things for me, Tro, was to be able to give you a big hug, send you on your way. And Were you able it, to reach around me? I was able to reach around you. It's I don't, very, I don't, I don't, very good. I don't think that you were. That's good. Well, the fact that you can even joke over it today means that you're very level-headed. You understand the circumstance. Uh, but it was a joy. It was a joy to graduate you, to see you grow in medical school, and perhaps even more importantly, Tro, what you've done in your life to give to other people. You saw within your difficulty something important to give to other people, and that in an individual is very, very rare, and you're using your medical degree and your license to do really wonders around the entire country as you expand your obesity practice. (laughs) And making uh, making a significant significant difference. I really treasured, I treasured the interview with you today, Doctor Tro. Actually, Doctor Tro Kalajian. Yeah, you know, um, look, I am forever in in your debt. You really Aww. mentored me. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I was a little pipsqueak, causing trouble, mm-hmm. and uh, 
you saw to it that I focused on my studies and oh. you know um, you know and and to be honest like it was hard you know it was hard we were a, we were a rowdy group the first med you know class that medical school that's now grown and grown and uh, you've kept in touch with me since and I've kept in touch with you and you know you've been uh, a persistent mentor of mine and it's an absolute pleasure the minute you know it's i've had you on my podcast my so when you said hey tro come on ours i was like i can't wait you know wait. well you are you are a credit to toro university to toro college of osteopathic medicine i'm glad we had a chance to see the videotape that they made of you because it certainly uh, honored the work that you're doing and i know we're going to be seeing you again dr tro so we want you to be a huge huge success help a lot of people and we thank you extraordinarily for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. I think after today's interview with Dr. Tro, I will be even more mindful that after that dinner dessert or buying that family-sized bag of Oreo cookies, maybe I ought to think twice about it. So this is my commentary for today's podcast. Weight loss is a major struggle for the majority of us. I believe if you have a stable mood, you will have the primary prerequisite for physical and mental well-being. When the mood changes, so do thoughts and behaviors. If one is depressed, it impacts appetite, sleep, and actions. Mood stability will provide emotional contentment, which makes an enormous impact on self-discipline and mindfulness, which in turn encourages weight loss and prevents other addictions. My sense has always been to help patients learn how to put on their emergency break when they feel the cravings for food, alcohol, drugs, or other substances. It is an immediate halt. Remove yourself from the situation, whether it's the bakery or bar, and give yourself a chance to recalibrate. You may become in touch with the negative feelings such as hopelessness, rage, shame, and self-loathing, which creates the desire that propels you to numb yourself. It's almost as if you're going into an emotional coma to avoid internal and external life stresses. This then becomes a habit, a style of living, a way to avoid getting on the right train, going on the, in the right direction for healthy living. I believe Dr. Tro has been helpful with this knowledge. He's a very smart man to alert us to the fact that if the mood is not stable, as Freud referenced, it becomes a form of doing and undoing. In other words, you're on a yo-yo diet, the yo-yo syndrome. Unlike our previous podcast on Alzheimer's disease, we have the power to change our weight. We are in command of what we eat. So the next time a weight loss program seems tantalizing, don't get seduced by the promo. Take a look at your BMI index. Look in the mirror. Evaluate who you are and where you want to go in life. Come to grips with your feelings. And as you heard Dr. Tro say today, and if need be, a nutritional coach who you can be accountable to and perhaps a team just to set up a system that works for you. Everybody's system is differently. Most importantly, as Nike would say, just do it. Well, plenty of advice and homework for all of us. Let's turn to our emails today and find out what our listeners have to say about the topic of weight loss. We received one email that I thought you'd like to address, Geraldine. The email comes from Silver Springs, Maryland. Dear Peel Back the Onion, I'm in my late 20s and work for a public relations firm. Imagine uh, is, uh, or uh, the image is very important to me, uh, but not to my firm. And I don't always feel that I am living up to the physical image of an employee of the firm. I feel uncomfortable with myself. I love my work. Understand, no one has made me feel uncomfortable or said anything to me about my weight. But I feel it. I'm caught in an internal dilemma and don't know what to do. Signed, Ruth. The question I ask you, Ruth, have you always been concerned about how your body looks? Body dysmorphia is a term used when a person is uncomfortable with their body. Ruth, it seems to me this feeling is coming from inside you and not from others. I would question your expectations regarding your weight. 
I would also wonder if you do comparison shopping regarding how much you have and what others have, be it in relation to weight, money, intelligence, and aptitude. If this is true, you will always feel uncomfortable, like a have or a have not. It is important for you to have a realistic assessment of your weight by a physician you trust, someone like Dr. Tro, who can help you with the disparity you're experiencing. If indeed there is a disconnect, you may need to discuss this further with a mental health counselor. Good advice, Geraldine. Well, we have another email, this time from a very small town in Wyoming called Gillette. <laughs> I even had to look that town up. It happens to be the energy capital of the, of the nation because of its natural resources. In any case, our writer says, Dear Peel Back the Onion, I think I've just become more disillusioned with the way people think about food these days. When I go out with my friends to eat, they laugh at me because I try to eat healthy. They force me to eat some good food, their food, and the cycle of being fat, well, it just never ends. How do I get out of this mess? And it's signed, Cynthia. Cynthia, it's a very hard to withstand social pressure of peers, family and friends. It happens to everyone, to all of us. So you're not alone. Know your audience before you go out and be as mindful as you can about how probably they're going to interact with you. Stay firm with your intention to eat healthy. Review the menu before you go out to eat so you can be in control and not indecisive when you order. Be in control of your lifestyle. Be proactive and you will never have to apologize for what's good for you. The more you're an advocate for yourself, the more empowered you will feel, and this will then become internally organic. Well, Geraldine, this is my commentary on the issue of eating healthy, as I reference this topic in my book, The Fun Book of Fatherhood. I find no better way to teach children about developing good eating habits than to take people examples off the table and talk about how animals eat. After all, Animals are fun, and children often like to play games and even imitate the animals. You can find the animal kingdom rich in examples of good and bad eating habits if you take the time to enjoy a great afternoon at the zoo, watch some of the nature shows on public TV, or even observe animals that may be all around you in your backyard. For example, the birds and the bees. But... Take the giraffe, for example. How many times have you asked your child to sit up at the kitchen table to eat? How many times have you gotten compliance? Perhaps you may want to use the giraffe as your next mealtime example. Ask your child how the giraffe eats and how will they hear great stories about that giraffe coming from you and their observation also at the zoo looking at the long neck as the giraffe reaches high into the trees to get the food. Ask the child to show you how the giraffe does it. As the child engages in showing you, teaching how the giraffe eats, it may be a good time for mama giraffe, papa giraffe, and all the baby giraffes at the table to eat the same way. There you go. The lesson is learned. Remember, a child will be much more interested in which vitamins an elephant is getting in grass than what are found in salad. I think you can read between the lines here, but parents and children, well, we learn and we teach each other. The animals become the vehicle for behavior modification. We live as icons to our children. How we behave, how we eat, will shape the lives of of our children. Sometimes it takes an animal example to drive a point home, but once the point is understood, the lesson becomes a lifelong activity. So if you want to know about how the giraffe eats, the raccoon eats, the lion eats, you can observe these behaviors at the zoo all over the country. And you can also get it all in the fun book of fatherhood. Good advice, Jerry. Well, it's time to say farewell, and thank you for allowing us to spend some time together. This show belongs to you. 
We hope you enjoyed our conversation today and generously shared this podcast and show with all your friends and professional colleagues. Continue to be psychologically involved and you will find positivity in your life and in others. Until next time, we hope all things will go your way and the core of who you are is always a beacon seen by others. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. If there's an issue which you would have discussed on Peel Back the Onion, please send us a note to peelbacktheonionpodcast at gmail.com. We will always try to get as many emails on the air as we can. From your hosts, Dr. Geraldine Cronin and Dr. Jerry Camerata, along with a terrific production staff at K-Town Studios in Kingston, New York, and from me, Van Ritchie. We hope every day is a great day for you and everyone in your life.